The views and opinions expressed during this show do not necessarily reflect like the, the policy, policy or position of any affiliated workplace or employer. The, the views, views and, opinions and opinions of this show, of this show do, do not constitute not. recommendations for therapy. Please contact a licensed SLP for individual consult on your situation. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's transmitting a thought from one person to another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. The back and forth between two people. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas or thoughts or names. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we belong. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science, episode number 170. I'm Matt Hot, joined by, oh, I forget to say what I am. I'm a middle school SLP and home health care uh, for stroke and dementia. Joined by our PTSD SLP way down south in Florida, Rachel Arshambo. Hi there. Hello. And our pediatric expert in the great state of Texas, Michelle Wintering. How's it going? Hello. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a little bitty device that could be saving your voice. It's also opera singer tested. So that's going to be fun to dive into that. Also into the realm of cognitive problems, concussions, and maybe we should be doing more. Uh, we're also going to have the second part of our accent modification interview with Michelle. Of course, we got our due processes and shout outs and all of that. But before that, we want to hear from you. So make sure you head to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. And you can email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. So. It's been about two weeks since we've seen each other, and we only know that as a 100% fact because uh, some of our iTunes devices didn't update it, and it said that the last episode dropped March 1st and is now March 14th. Hello, ladies. How are you? Doing okay. How are you? I am wonderful. I am counting down the days till I leave for Florida, which is in three days from the recording of this, which will probably be the day after I put it up on iTunes. You'll be so close so. to Rachel yet so far. I know. How close are you to Orlando? I know you came to the Orlando Asha. It, it'll take me like two and a half hours, three hours to get there from Fort Lauderdale. So oh, it's you're not in too Fort far. Lauderdale. Yes. So it's a little We're extra. We're rocking Legoland this year. Ooh. I, I hear great things about Legoland. I've never been, but I hear great things. It's one of those weird ages for my kids. They're not, they'll uh, nine, six and two. So we have to hit some of these parks while they all three enjoy it before the one goes i am too old to have fun with you people just remind him that there are disney adults oh, yes. who like, go by themselves and like <laughs> that is totally fine who would gladly go by yourself i'm sure exactly rachel how has your week been your two weeks have been my two weeks have been pretty good I, my, my favorite thing that I have to say is I finally got to go to this concert that I've had tickets for, for a year. I went to go see Greta Van Fleet oh, you last told Wednesday. Us when you got those tickets. I cannot even tell you the pictures that my friend took of me just 
are me experiencing pure joy and happiness. And I knew every single song. I lost my voice. We're going to be talking about vocal hygiene in a little bit. And I want to know more about that because I was screaming my face off. So what is your favorite Greta Van Fleet song? So my favorite is probably Stardust Chords, but they don't play that in the uh, the tour. Oh, really? How come? Yes. They, I don't know, but I, they go to the main songs. It's it's based on this one album. Like they play many, many songs based on their newest album. Mm, but okay, that one, fair. it's like a special one that they'll be like, oh, you know, we're going to throw this in for fun. And um I just was so happy with everything. It was such a great concert. I don't think anything will top that. It was incredible. That is awesome. Yep. Michelle, you get to follow that. How has your two weeks been? Uh, it's been pretty good. In that two weeks, I did have a, which is a rare thing when you have two small children, a kid-free solo trip. Um, I went back Ooh. to El Paso over the weekend, El Paso, Texas, for a former coworker and friend's wedding. Um, who I hadn't seen since I moved out of El Paso um, going on five years ago. So um, it was pretty great to catch up with some old coworkers and go to this wedding and eat great Mexican food in El Paso. And um, oh, and then I have to tell you all, I met in person a longtime listener. If you remember four years ago, I found out through the bride. Um, I'll give her a shout out in case she's listening. But Shelly, Shelly is an OT who listens to us sometimes. And um, she introduced me to someone who had um, totally fangirled, as they said, about the podcast. Um, and we gave her a shout out probably four years ago. And I got to meet her in person at the wedding. So we have Yay! a mutual friend in Shelly and we got to meet in person at the at the celebration. That's so exciting. Yay. So her name's Stephanie. Shout out to Stephanie. She's an SLP as well. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, Stephanie. And has listened to us since grad school. Wow. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it's good. Hopefully we've gotten better or something. <laughs> she's our, she's actually our biggest critic and she writes all the negative reviews. Uh, I, I will take the feedback. That's, That's okay. She's still listening. <laughs> so there we go. So, so instead of doing an SS pod shout out and due process this week, Rachel, you did, or you attended the, uh, in, what was it? The, I was going to call it the informed care. No, well, so Asha had a trauma-informed panel, yes. um, and it was an hour and a half session. And uh, Carol Westby, who I really enjoy listening to, she was on the panel. They also had um, three or four other people. It was made up of a, a few SLPs. Uh, a lot of them worked in the VA clinic. Um, so a lot of what they were talking about was talking uh, related to treating veterans and i think when you're talking about trauma you you automatically go to that so it, it was talking a lot about that um i think that there was some good information there i don't know if it was necessarily a beginner thing it, and again it wasn't a training it wasn't a presentation it was a panel for them to discuss they had questions um, that a moderator would ask and it seemed like they knew who was going to answer them. And then if anyone wanted to jump in, mm. they were able to do that, but it wasn't, I don't know if people who haven't been listening about trauma informed care or haven't had trainings or presentations on it 
understood what it was. I think that there were some basic definitions, but um, it, it was more of a panel kind of, I don't know. I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I'm glad that Asha put the initiative and, and put that together. I think it's so important. There were a lot of questions being asked in the Q&A, um, but, and I, I'm probably a little biased about, I've attended a lot of trauma-informed trainings and everything. So there were certain points that I was hoping that they would hit to explain, but then I would have to tell myself, it's not a training, it's not a presentation, it's a panel. So it was a very good intention. That is always the hard part when you attend a panel mm -hmm. or, or even a training where you are, are knowledgeable on a subject. And the, the problem is like, I always see with, with these kind of things is if you know nothing, you'll come away and you could gain a hundred new things. But then if you actually are knowledgeable on something, you, you just kind of hope for something and maybe not walk away with as much as you wanted to. So I'm sorry. No, I, I'm glad I attended. I'm glad I listened to other people. And it, it was SLPs. There were licensed mental health counselors, um, different professions that, that work with SLPs, I guess. And um, I'm, I'm glad that Asha put it together. And I hope they do more trauma-informed stuff coming up. And um, I, I think that was good that they had that available. Are they doing any more? Not that I know of. I know that they do have a page. I think I talked about it in the last episode that there's a trauma-informed care page that they have resources linked. I'm cited on the ASHA Voices podcast hey, hey, that yeah, I did. It's, so it's funny that I'm cited in it and then not <laughs> like part of the panel. But um, they, they are gathering. It, it's a hot topic right now. A lot of people are asking for training. A lot of SLPs are asking for information on trauma-informed care. So I think it's good that they're gathering this information and more research needs to be done in this area. But so sure. good, good, good attempt from ASHA. We want to hear from you. If you attended that, head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com or email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail. Dot com. Our first article is a wearable device uh, for vocal fatigue that senses when your uh, voice needs a break. And Rachel, based on what you said about Greta Van Fleet, it probably would have been going off in the first eight minutes for you. Uh, but this is from Northwestern University. It was developed uh, part of their uh, material science and engineering bio medical engineering and neurological surgery, McCormick School of Engineering, and the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. It is a little device that you can wear, and it gives you a little real-time haptic feedback as an alert uh, that you are pushing your voice too far, too hard, and meeting your thresholds. I love this kind of stuff. That's incredible. I think that's a really cool thing to have. And I also, if you read through the article, I thought it was really interesting how they had to calibrate it basically to mm. get the computer to distinguish between speaking and singing. And so they used opera singers, uh, volunteer opera singers who recorded, they said, I think it was 2,500 um, one second samples of singing and speaking in order to get the machine, you know, the computer to learn the difference. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. And my thought also is when you're using this device for people that have had such training and control over their voice, I wonder what this would be like for people that 
need to monitor their voice at just a speaking level. Like I know for me, I was talking about Greta Van Fleet, but I know that I'm not able to project sometimes. Like when I'm in a very loud restaurant or something, I'm like yelling at the top of my lungs and people are still like, what are you saying? And I don't know why that is. So I would like, you know, a wearable device to tell me like you are straining or, you know, I want some data on that and what I'm actually doing because that's not my area that I specialize in. So I'm not sure why my voice does that, if that's just how my body is or if that's something that I can fix. I went through before I was a speech therapist, I was a theater minor. And that's actually where I learned how to project because we didn't have the microphones. So I've never had a problem with that, but I've always had a problem with uh, just not good vocal rest and mm -hmm. not enough water intake. Hydration. Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah, enough hydration. So this device sits just kind of on the sternum. It's about the size of a watch. Uh, it uses Bluetooth, so it can go to any device that you're using. Uh, they'll press a button on the app if they experience vocal discomfort at any point during the day, effectively capturing the instantaneous and cumulative vocal load at the time so that they can build your vocal threshold. Hmm. And I, I, Very I cool. just think it could be a really good resource to have that data and information, especially when we talk about, I mean, they mentioned in the article, but teachers and speech pathologists and mm -hmm. um, all these professions that constantly overuse and even abuse their voices without realizing it. Would this lessen the amount of people that are attend are going to a speech pathologist for vo vocal therapy because they're not using, you know, I, I know that when I worked in the school, I had a lot of teachers that were not hydrating and not using good vocal hygiene. So they'd come to me and they'd be like, what do I need to do? And I would give them like some suggestions and everything. But when you have a device like this that is monitoring it on their own, would SLPs be needed in this area? And of course, I, of course, I, the I answer think is yes. Of course we would. And I, I think something like this is, um, is not something that's going to be everywhere. Um, Agreed. It's going to be something that a more small population is aware of and uses. Absolutely. But well, I think maybe you... it could be something that could become part of a treatment plan. Definitely vocal health. <laughs> well, it's like I do some vocal strengthening with some of my post-stroke patients, and it's always trying to get them to download a decibel meter that works and then training them on how to put it so far away to work on getting louder or softer. It would be wonderful to have a, I don't know if I like the device that sticks to the patient's sternum. That, uh, that's where they're at right now. But I, I, you know, we've seen how much the iWatch has jumped and changed uh, everything. So I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that change as well. But I would love to be able to say, hey, here is your vocal data collection. Wear this around your neck when you're doing therapy. And then I show up, I plug it into my iPad or my desktop or not my desktop, <laughs> my laptop. And I can see like, oh, you were doing it so well here. What happened at this moment? I, I love the idea of this. It's very cool. I love technology. We've seen with the iWatch where they've been able to add, what is it? The O2 sensor now? Oh yeah. Patients that's as their pulse ox as their. I do. That's I, 
I had pretty sure I had OCD for a very long time coming out of COVID that I would check mine literally every 15 seconds. And my mom would be on the phone with me and she'd be like, stop looking at it. Stop looking at it. (laughs) Oh, Rachel. I know. I know. But hey, big, big stuff from Northwestern University. Let us know how you would use that in your vocal treatments, speechsciencepodcast.com or speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. So, Rachel, are you currently, I always ask you this and I apologize that I always forget. Are you currently in the schools as a therapist or more in a supervisor role right now? More of a supervisor role. I don't tip it. I don't see students. I help out the SLPs that are seeing students. And then Michelle, when's the last time you were in the schools? Schools has been a long time. Yes. I've always said that I feel like if we had proper workload conditions, we should be more involved in sports. And the newest article from watching from the Washington Post says that even three mild concussions can cause cognitive problems later in life. Researchers have looked at uh, 15,764 adults from ages 50 to 90, and more than 40% have had at least one TBI earlier in life at an average of 30 years before their study participation began. So we're looking at late teens for a lot of these uh, folks, uh, looking at concussions and other mild TBIs can lead to executive functioning and cognitive problems. I have always wondered why we are not more involved, especially on the athletic side. We're the ones that are trained to give the MOCA or other similar cognitive tests. Why are we not involved? So I think... I think it depends. I think there are school districts where we are. Um, I know I, I pushed to be, I say pushed, I asked and they said, yeah, sure. When I was in a school to, um, to be on the concussion response team for wow. school. Yep. Um, and the fact that we had one, I thought was pretty cool That's too. That's very but, cool. Um, yeah, that is Col- awesome. I think Colorado from having been in a few different States, Colorado seemed to have been, and that was in I started working there in 2012, um, seemed to be um, on the early part of that curve of having more responsive teams to concussions in schools. And um, they did the, I know in the school that I coached in, because I worked in one school and I coached basketball there and I coached volleyball in another school that wasn't my full-time employment. And um, in the larger public school where I coached volleyball, we also used the impact program, which has free and post concussion testing. And so all freshmen and all juniors yes. went through and it wasn't just those in sports. It was, um, all freshmen and all juniors because it's not just kids in sports oh, who, wow. who have a concussion. Right. <laughs> and, um, True. uh, and I mean, for example, I had a student who got a concussion from a locker opening into her mm-hmm. head in the, while she's, Ooh. you know, <laughs> in the while, while she's just in a normal school day. So, um, we know concussions can happen anywhere. So, I say that I'd love to hear from people in other states if you have a concussion team, if the speech pathologist is at all a part of that. But I do think sometimes we need to um, inform people about our scope of practice in the schools when it comes to that, of that we can help support. Or even if it's not for every student, maybe for the sports team or the high concussion risk sports, um, you could be part of of doing some kind of baseline testing because um, I know my high school had baseline testing for at least the football team. Um, And that was way back in 
um, the early 2000s. But um, I think that's expanded to a lot more sports now just because of concussion awareness. And, yeah. and the idea of the, what do they call it? The Monday morning concussion where the kid plays a football game on Friday night and takes a hard hit but because they're not being mentally taxed or having to, mm. you know, follow a schedule or move between classes or answer questions on a paper, um, it's not noticed mm -hmm. until Monday morning. The study found that the cognitive problems were dose dependent, meaning the effects of long-term cognitive performance uh, increased as the number of TBIs grew. So thought processing speed, working memory, uh, as well as identifying high-risk activities were all impacted by the number of, of TBIs or concussions they had. I believe that is also a rule now, Michelle, is mm -hmm. that in Ohio, that if you mentioned the word head injury or, or concussion, uh, I believe the athlete is done for the day and has to go through concussion protocol the next morning to be mm -hmm. cleared. Yeah. So even if it's like a, a joking, like I got my bell rung, they're done from that activity for the rest of the day. Yeah. Now question, I know maybe I'm just forgetting, but is concussion now classified as MTBI, like the mm -hmm. mild TBI, right? That that's an interchangeable term at this point. I Yes. All concussions are TBIs, but not all TBIs are concussions. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, right. I got a concussion as a coach and it wasn't what? even like, I, I don't know if you knew this back in, uh -huh. yeah, I, before I was a co-host on the podcast, but, um, it definitely made me more understanding and empathetic to, to what that feels like because, um, I stood up into a charter bus door, you know, those really oh. thick doors that are like five inches thick. Yeah. So the back of my head went into that and sort of bell rung feeling right and um and i guess add to that i was with um i, I coached the deaf high school girls basketball team so there was no hearing person around me so mm. no one saw or heard this oh my happen. god <laughs> um and uh i was telling my assistant coach that it happened and you know we followed up on it the next day because i was feeling so out of it but um and then we had christmas break shortly after that and so i didn't realize how much it was affecting me mm. until I was back trying to do progress notes and everything. And then fast forward a month later, rereading some of those notes that I made. And I thought I was fine when I wrote those notes and mm. I had spelling errors and simple math errors and things that I would have never made the mistake, you know, or that typo on. Right. Um, typically. It, it's so fascinating to me. Like I could talk about concussions all the time i hit my head on my stackable dryer once a week like and i'm i'm like did i just give myself a concussion mm -hmm. but no i think uh, matt was saying the the awareness of it especially with this last year i, I don't know if you guys followed the dolphins but there was a major mm -hmm. you know to a tiger something. yeah Tua. yeah Tua. um he had most likely two in a row that he he got injured he was out um, like he had the hand movements and everything like people were, uh, when I saw that on the screen at dinner, I was like, that is a brain injury. Like that is, mm -hmm. that's not good. And, um, I think a lot of people 
are aware of it now because of how how talked about it is in in sports and the protocols that they have to go through and everything and michelle when you're saying about um you had a, a protocol when you were in high school i'm i don't remember doing a concussion protocol when i, I played flag football women's flag football from freshman year to senior year and i wonder if they didn't consider that a contact sport so i didn't get it however my theory is there were many more injuries on flag football because the girls would just beat each other up like i got kneed in the face um and we didn't have any pads we didn't have helmets so i think there were we should have had concussion tests Mm -hmm. um the last school that i worked at was a high school and i know that they do concussion testing like i heard them say over the radio one day like all all you know athletes need to make their way to the gym and do the baseline testing and whatever it's mandatory and all those things. And I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. Um, I, I just, I was on a TikTok yesterday and a parent posted their child who was playing football. I don't know if it was contact. I don't know if it was flag. I don't know, touch, whatever, but the kid got hit in the jaw, in the face, in the head somewhere. The kid kept complaining that his jaw hurt, his jaw hurt every 10 seconds. He's in the back of his parents' car saying, where am I? And this kid was probably like 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to watch. It's probably three minutes of the parents saying, you're safe. We're going to the hospital. He's looking at his brothers and sisters. And he has no idea where he is. Like, you can see how terrified he is. And that is such a, like, it's scary that that can happen from whatever it could be, you know? So... I'm glad that there's more awareness out there that people know, oh, you know, you can't just let it be. Like, that's something that mm-hmm. you take them to the hospital for. You make sure everything's okay. Um, but it, there's still a lot of work to be done in that area. But this article is very cool. Um, not cool, but I guess it's important. We need more awareness of it. And it's just saying the more times you hit your head, the worst outcome, you know? I mean, and we've seen this with like the effects of CTE on, on yes. professional wrestlers and football players and, mm-hmm. and boxers. I often wonder if there is any link to the concussions at an earlier age and the onset mm. of dementia or what we would classify as dementia. Well, we do. We have been some research. Yes, Uh, we have with Parkinson's as well. We've got uh, we have, uh, I mean, boxers that get hit in the head repeatedly that end up, you know, we do have some research out there. There definitely needs to be more. And it's very promising that a lot of these NFL players are when they pass away, they donate their brains to science and they're able to do tests on it so we can see the damage from it like this is an incredible finding and it's it's a shame that it takes until yep they're gone to get that information or that this could have resulted from a childhood injury a childhood concussion like we don't know how many times it takes for cte to happen you know yeah. True. And and I think like you talked about, Rachel, there's a huge discrepancy between school districts and what mm-hmm. um, what kind of baseline testing is available. I know that there was baseline testing only for football when I was in high school at the high school I attended. Yeah. But um, but that's different district to district and school to school and funding. Yeah. By funding. And, um, you know, the 
the higher socioeconomic schools right. have more access to that have doing that pre-testing for all the students versus just for maybe a couple select sports. And just like you said, um, I mean, I knew firsthand having three concussions in one season on my volleyball team that, um, as vo- as much as volleyball is not at all, like specifically a contact sport, there's a lot of opportunity for, yeah. for head injury. Definitely from an accident from, ju- I mean, they're, they're not completely no contact. Like it, it's mm-hmm. so there should be baseline testing for everyone, but, and it's also the response when they do get hit and the, the whole, when Matt was saying like, Oh, if you say the word, like, that's so silly to me. Like ju- well, if there's, if there is an injury, like I, I understand what you're saying. Like if someone jokes about it, like you have to test for it, but it's also like, what did this happen on the field? Is there a protocol for, Hey, you did get just hit in the head. We have to evaluate you now. Like, well, I, I that's, think that's kind of what I was saying is like, but even if a football player walks off and says, Oh, I'm fine. I just got, my of course. Wrong, yeah. It's like, Nope, that starts the concussion protocol. So, uh, that's kind of what I meant. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. If I missed no, it. no, it's okay. Cause I know that there are districts that, you know, take what the players say seriously and then they'll go, mm-hmm. you know, test them after, but it's really like, there should be people watching these games that say, Nope, like we need to test you before you can get back out there. There is an anti-concussion collar that yes. is a Q collar. It was yeah. developed here in Cincinnati with Cincinnati Children's uh, and the Mount Notre Dame soccer, all-girls soccer school or all-girls school soccer team and the St. Xavier all-boys football team uh, mm-hmm. helped develop this Q collar. What it does is it traps uh, like 1% extra blood flow into the brain yeah. to help can help cushion it during sloshing around moments wow i think i've seen this i just googled it because i'm like i feel like i've i've heard of it but... I, I would like to see the research behind that because the theory is very interesting i saw that it's related to the blood flow like that the it's the inflammation that when the brain gets hit that mm-hmm. they're trying to pr- but like is it good that we're restricting blood flow even if it's a le- like i i don't know um here you go it was the u.s food and drug administration in february 21 authorized the marketing of mm-hmm. the device so and i know that they do have um i think in the nfl they've got like braces and that it it holds the back of their head so that they're not yep. able to go back and there there's certain things i know in hockey that they've got a collar but for a certain for a different reason that they don't there was that terrible injury from the panthers in the 1990s for zednik that got cut there so they are fined if they don't wear those certain pieces. And I think the NFL does also those protective measures to make sure that they are wearing certain gear that's supposed to prevent them from injury. And it's probably a liability thing on their, their end, you know? Oh, 100%. So. Well, 100%. and I, I'm happy to see the shift is to reading an article like this and, and seeing that, I mean, even as simple as the thought people used to think that if you didn't, blackout that yes. wasn't a concussion. Right. I mean, in 2013 and 20 or 2014, whenever I had my concussion, the PA I saw for follow-up after asked me exactly that. Well, did you black out? Well, then mm-hmm. it's probably not a concussion. Oh my As gosh. my friend who drove me there was sitting there ex- helping explain the symptoms and I have a provider telling me it's not a concussion and me being on a concussion team and having right. 
and I wasn't in a good enough state to argue or discuss with him, but I remember thinking, I don't think that's right. It's, it's like <laughs> yeah. that, uh, that Ron Swanson quote when he's in home Depot and he just hand, he's like, I know more than you. And just continues walking when the guy wants to help him out. I know more than you. Yeah. But I was concussed. So I, of was course, just so like, do um, I don't right. think that's right. <laughs> but the- I, I'm, I'm happy to see that there's a shift happening. Yes. Um, with that. And we Not want to hear just from for you. football players. <laughs> want to hear from you at home. Speech Science Podcast and Speech Science Podcast at gmail.com. Michelle, on the second part interview, coming back from break, what do we got? Oh, you get to hear from Bob McKinney again. He and I got to, um, had the chance to talk about his book and talk about his specialty area of accent modification. And so this interview part part two is really a brief overview of accent modification and where you can find more resources and um, especially if you're interested in getting more involved in that area of our field wonderful you're listening to speech science the alzheimer's association and the ad council present the story of cynthia and ed My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Speech Science Podcast. This is Michelle Wintering. And if you heard the interview last week, um, you got to hear from Bob McKinney. He lives in San Diego. He's a multilingual school-based SLP who also has a specialty in accent modification. Um, He's also the author of a book called Back to Basics, Accent Modification. Wait, no, that was the professional development. What is your book? That's right. Here's how to do accent modification. There we go. Here's how to do accent modification. That is his book. And so on this segment, the second part of our interview with Bob, I want to hear from Bob all about a brief brief overview of accent modification. So Bob, can you tell us, we'll start very basic. What is accent modification? Absolutely. And it's great being back. And I just, I'll try to condense as much as I can. There's a lot to talk about, but I'm really excited about this opportunity. And I guess I would start with just talking about what accents are and why people have them. And that's, that's a great place to begin, but basically something seems to happen. We we've known this, everybody pretty much knows that there's a different way that children acquire languages versus adults. People have known that forever, really. So that children, if they're exposed to a language before the age of, let's say, 12, or, or could be a little bit later, are basically going to acquire those, and they're going to sound exactly like non-natives or like native speakers of the language. But adults acquiring languages later in life are going to always sound a little bit different. So it's very normal and natural for adults who learn new languages to have an accent. And there are a lot of misconceptions about that, because I think in the general public, people think that you can just learn a language and sound exactly like someone who's 
was born speaking that language. It's just not the case. It's extremely rare if it happens at all. So it's important to talk about how having an accent is a normal and natural thing for adults learning languages. And we often talk about accents in broad definitions and narrow definitions. The broad definition for me is the idea of just an accent is something about the way you speak that tells about who you are, where you're from or your social status. And with that broader definition, we all have accents. Everybody has an accent and there, there's a clear logic to that. But there's a more narrow definition that people use all the time, which is just sounding different than whatever certain group we're talking about. So we often say someone has an accent or doesn't have an accent or a strong accent. That kind of thing implies that there are people who don't have accents. But you could see that accents are so powerful because they're, they bond. People create a group identity and they create these feelings of belonging, but that also causes other people to feel like they're outside of that group. So it can also divide people. And in our modern world, we really want to bring everyone together. So we really have to get beyond this idea that a particular accent is better than another accent or that kind of thing. We have to get beyond that type of mindset. But what we do in accent modification is we're, well, let me start with a little surprise here because we don't work on accents. So I think okay. that explains Tell that explains more. a lot of it actually. And I'll, I'll get into that in more detail, but, um, but I guess the main point is we're not really working on the accent. What we're working on is how someone communicates if they communicate effectively. And we're looking at clients who want these services because they want to change the way they communicate in another language. So I don't know if that's, if we've already got a good start or if you have a follow-up question, then I can get into more of what accents are or, or why we separate that out or that kind of thing. Yeah. But I, I, mean, I want to give you a chance. To, <laughs> I've, I've got talking. a list of questions, but I want to hear from you more than me. So um, really you led right into it, but when you say we don't work on accents, tell yeah. us more of what you mean, because it seems like accents really are um, relative to where you are and who you're around as to if it's perceived as being that one definition of an accent. And then the second part, so um, if you can explain on that, expand on that. And then secondly, if you can talk about um, what you just said about it being by choice, that it's not yeah. therapy. Those are important points. And I guess what really the, um, there was some groundbreaking research in the 90s by two Canadian researchers, and they really looked at separating out non-native speech. And they were instrumental in, in really splitting it in different ways. But the most important contribution they had was to really say that we have something we could call accentedness, which is really just your accent, that makes you sound different from someone else. And just like someone from Ireland sounds different than someone from Texas or someone who's a non-native, we all sound different. But the part that we could separate out that doesn't really affect communication. It just means that we sound different from each other. And then intelligibility, which is how well we understand each other. And they added another element they called comprehensibility, which was really like ease of understanding. I've, I've looked at it just slightly differently because I have the accentedness and the intelligibility. I think those are very important. And I just call the other factor naturalness because that to me is more about someone might understand everything you say, but if it is very different from the patterns of the language, it may distract the listener. But basically, we're really separating out accent from intelligibility. And okay. so that's that's the key. That's the key. And so what we call accent modification, which I know we can get into, some people don't want to use that term. We, we yeah. and I talked about that. But what we call accent modification then is more working on intelligibility. 
Absolutely. So we work on intelligibility and naturalness. So those two, those two factors, and, and I can give you examples of that, but it's really about making sure that people understand each other. And of course, intelligibility is, it's something that's going to vary. We're, we're going to have different levels of intelligibility, all of us in, in the languages that we speak as native speakers or non-natives, but we're trying to make sure that, for example, our clients are able to be understood by as big a group as possible. That's what we all want. And the part that you were asking with the follow-up there about the choice, you know, that's really important. I do want to discuss all of that because there, there have been some criticisms of accent modification, especially in the last couple of years. And many of my graduate students come in and they they wonder about it. They they worry that we're maybe trying to force people to sound a certain way or force them to conform or affect their identity. And that's a long, complicated discussion. And and we we know there's terrible linguistic discrimination and in the in the world we we feel though that we're actually supporting our clients and we're advocating for them we know this terrible discrimination exists but we also know that in the we live in a world where when you're learning a new language you're not always going to be intelligible you're you're acquiring the phonology of a new language and our clients come to us it's an elective service because they are having difficulty where people who are trying to understand them are not able to so they want to make changes in the way they speak so it's just a little bit complicated right now because everybody's very everybody wants to do the right things. We're in a time in our in the in the world as a whole, certainly in our country and certainly in our profession where we want to make sure we're kind of doing things the right way and I feel like it's absolutely something that can be done very sensitively and something that's going to help our clients, it's something that they want and we can also advocate for the larger picture for the discrimination that they face. And because this is something that is very much by choice, like you said, yes. if someone comes to you and says, can you help me with fill in the blank? And it has to do with accent modification. Um, what, what is your first question to them or what, what's your follow-up? How, how do you guide them with that? Yeah. And that's where it's interesting because some of the problems that we do have are from inappropriate referrals where somebody is going to be told for, you know, sometimes it's just flat out discrimination to say, oh, mm. you need to change the way you speak or you need to get accent modification. And that's where we are gatekeepers to say like, oh, hey, that was really inappropriate. And who told you that? And we can try to advocate for, for the client, but our clients, yeah, we want to make sure they're coming of their own free will, that they, they know what they're in for. And sometimes we have to gatekeep a little bit too, where we do have clients who do want to sound exactly like native speakers. They may be, they may be highly proficient, highly intelligible, speaking very natural English. And then they'll say, yes, but I, I really don't like it when people ask me where I'm from. And I really want to get to that level where no one's going to ask me that. And that's when we have to tell them that, well, that's really not something that happens or that we even really, it doesn't need to happen. We want to make sure our clients understand that they can be more effective communicators than native speakers. Mm -hmm. That's that's something that happens all the time. We all know non-natives who communicate more effectively than native speakers or Very equally. True. It happens all the time. But it's how many people do you know that acquired a language as an adult that could pass for a native speaker? That is something we don't see. So we try to educate them about that to make sure they know what they're in for. But yeah, it's it's a lot about talking to the clients and making sure they know what we do and what we're going to work on. We have very high levels of satisfaction. The clients are happy. Okay. And you say clients. I, I noted that as well, um, that you always refer to the people that you're working with as clients. Is that the term that you use? Is that the broader term used for, you know, in different settings, we say patient or student yeah. or resident, but um, in accent modification, is that the preferred um, term to use. Yeah, I think that is. And we have had a lot of questions about terminology and a lot of it is very justified. I think that 
I'm comfortable with the term accent modification. Many people are very critical of that. There's a term that's very common that the clients use actually a lot, which is accent reduction. And that one is has really fallen out of favor. And I'm not trying to tell people what to do and what to use for their own language. A lot of people are in private practice and accent reduction may be the most commonly searched term for this. So I'm not trying to sort of police what people say, but we personally, like in our clinic, we don't use that term. We always talk about accent modification. There have been some other terms that have been proposed, but the reality is these terms are not accurate anyway. So I, I, because I told you, we don't really work on accent. The reason that I like accent is it does explain things pretty quickly and unite our clients. So if you if you say I'm doing communication training, well then you might get native speakers who call you up and say I'd like to communicate mm, yep. at work and we say no 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 it's just for non so the accent thing is very easy people to under, understand it that all of our clients have non-native accents. The other terms are you know we don't talk about treating or that kind of thing. I don't like to hear people talk about like severe accents or mild that kind of thing. We we just uh, try to keep it very neutral. We know that these are it's just different ways of communicating. There's no disorder involved. Mm-hmm. Are there any um, protocols or standardized tests, or is it more? dynamic assessment with your clients. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty dynamic. I mean, yeah. there are some tests that are used by people and but they're sort of the people have developed on their own. I have some things in my book that but we we really just try to have what we want is a snapshot of what's going to jump out at a listener. And it doesn't matter if the listener is native speaker or non-native. That that doesn't even matter. But what's just going to jump out? Are are they going to be able to understand everything? Are, are they going to be distracted maybe if something strays so much on the super segmental level? So that's what we're looking for. And then we're trying to figure out to prioritize what targets are going to create the best change. But we don't. We also don't like to sort of slog it out like you might with the kids with articulation because we're not looking at an end goal like they're going to acquire this particular phoneme like you might with a developing a child who's developing speech. Okay. But we're we're looking at, we only see our clients in our, program one semester. It's a one-shot thing because we don't want them to feel like, oh, I just have to keep hammering it out until I get it just right. No, we want to give them some awareness of what they can work on and what areas really give them some information about how to produce these sounds or why that sound may not even be that important to produce accurately. And and the super segmentals, the intonation, the features of, of uh, connected speech. And then they're going to go out into the world and just continue to improve on their own or to make changes on their own. And you started to say it here, but could you define for us super segmental just for our listeners in case they either don't remember or work in an area of speech that maybe they haven't touched on it in a while? Yeah, that's key. And what we find is that since SLPs are so great at what they do and they have so much training and communication, they really are the, the experts in that field. But the two areas that jump out the most that we do that really doesn't get addressed much is we do work on vowels a lot. We treat the vowels and consonants equally versus, you know, when you're doing the Goldman Fristo test, they mm-hmm. don't ask about vowels. So most people are very unfamiliar with working with vowels. The only experience they had was in phonetics class and they probably forgot it. And then we have the supra-segmentals, which are the features of connected speech. So we're talking about intonation, which is the melody of speech, sometimes called prosody in our field too. We have linking, the way the sounds are connected. We have phrasal stress. We have the word stress. We have a lot of different factors. The rate is very important. And a a little bit of a surprise here for people, uh, especially for SLPs, is the research shows that non-natives actually should generally speed up a little bit 
versus SLPs always want to slow everybody down. Mm. It's just so classic. And you'll see SLPs even in the accent world kind of fight about that. But the research is pretty clear that most non-natives would benefit by speaking up a little faster. Is that my my thought just hearing that is is that because it increases the naturalness it's yes. more natural that's it and ah, that's okay. that balance of the clear and natural that we do and so in in my book that's been that's one of the major arguments i make is that we really need to treat the intelligibility which we just say is being clear and the naturalness is natural right so we tell the clients that we want them to be clear and natural or that's the goal for them so you could balance things out so so an example might be something like even at the phoneme level if if a client says water in in American English, that's certainly intelligible. Everybody's mm -hmm. going to know exactly what word that was. But again, that's not how we say it. We say water, so mm -hmm. it's going to cause listeners to reflect on that of like, why did that person say the t and that kind of thing. So we're 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 having we have that contrast. It's not all about intelligibility. There's another part of it which is the naturalness, and then the super segmentals are key to that. Mm -hmm. Do you work with any clients um, when it comes to more regional English accents in the United States? I, I have, but I we don't do that now. But yeah, mm -hmm. that's another similar kind of related. And in my book, I didn't really get into it. I just said there are a lot of similarities, but this book's not about that. But a lot of times the work ends up being the same. But it tends to be a lot of times then much more at the segmental level. Okay. But, and how yeah. it, that naturalness piece of how it's perceived. Huh. Right. I've, my brain's going too about what um, <laughs> what that. Can oh, be. it's fun! It's wonderful, and we love our clients. I think that's the number one benefit. Is just the clients are amazing there, and they're so they're so excited. And a lot of times they just they didn't know there was such a thing. They just thought a lot of it's misinformation. It's kind of like a haze. They don't really know. Like that example with the tap. You know, a lot of them start to hear. Okay, people aren't saying the tea and water, but what are they doing? And we can explain that. Hey, this is rule based. This is how it works, and they can we can make sure they're doing it. Or, you know, and we, we, when I say make sure they're doing it, we, we make sure they're aware of it. It's always a choice. We, we want to make sure they understand that, hey, this is what's going on. This is how it works in American English, but you're going to decide if you want to do that or not. And mm -hmm. we just want them to have the choice. And I'm guessing this being um, not a therapy and not a patient typical relationship, more of a coaching, um, yeah. it sounds like relationship. Um, I'm guessing this is something that falls outside of insurance and outside of the medical part of speech pathology, right? That's it. So it really only goes on in graduate training programs. And we were saying that's not so common. And then private practice, because you're not going to get any insurance for it. Mm -hmm. Where it falls for licensing is kind of a gray zone. So you hear different opinions on that because really anyone can do it. So are you actually, do you need your license to do it? And then is it a problem if you do have your license or not have your, so I'm not going to get into mm -hmm. that because, you know, it's a very litigious country, yeah, that's, that's, but so people are paranoid it. about it. Yeah. Um, what other fields, because I know you just said there, accent modification yeah. is not only done by speech language pathologists. So who else do you run into who is also, you know, developing an expertise in accent modification? Yeah. You'll find people who have done some voice or dialect coaching. It's really common acting coaches, that kind of thing. It's, it's really typical. And of course, ESL teachers are really doing it all the time on the broader level. I had a great zoom call with someone from originally from uh, Chile and he's, he's acted in, uh, in South America and in the United States, but he's, he's interested in this and he's already doing it. He already has clients, but he doesn't have his MA in, in, as an SLP. So he was curious about that. Should he get it or not? So we were talking about that. Oh yeah, you're right. That is totally a different, um, because this is a, an area of speech pathology that is 
very much a niche for other professions. Yeah. So there are voice and voice trainers and other people who do it. Really, anyone can do it. Mm Mm-hmm. And remember, here's, I don't want to, I want to make sure I don't forget to say this (laughs) because there is, I think there's this impression that it's all sort of standard American English speakers and everybody's trying to get everyone to speak a certain way. The people I've met through CoreSpan that I mentioned last week, which is the Corporate Speech Pathology Network, these are practitioners from all over the country and other countries who have different regional dialects of English that they work with. And then you have non-native practitioners too. So non-native speakers are equal or just as good at this or better at providing accent modification. In many cases, they're better providers because they have an understanding of how to acquire the phonemes or how to do the different patterns the way they learned it. So I have friends who are non-native providers. Mm -hmm. Who probably, you just said it, have a much better perspective because they've had to learn those different languages themselves. And kind of- Yeah, and since we're not going- we're not trying to make people sound like native speakers. So again, we're focused on the intelligibility and the naturalness. So you don't have to have this native model to provide. All you have to do is have the good understanding of how to produce the phonemes and the super segmentals. Mm, okay. So the phonemes and the super segmentals are the biggest part for that naturalness or comprehensibility. Was that what the other? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess was? it goes back to phonetics, you know, so I, I love phonetics and, uh, that's the number one class from the entire training program from undergrad to grad that's going to help you in accent modifications if you have a good foundation in phonetics. Mm-hmm. So the model that you work with right now, you said it's a semester long. It's yeah. more kind of completing a course versus, you know, dismissing from therapy in the traditional SLP sense. That's it. And I loved what you said, you know, about the motivational coaching, because that is a big part of it. We know that confidence affects communication. And a lot of times we're there to work with the client and to really, at the end of the day, say, you are a great communicator. You you really do get your thoughts across clearly, naturally, and there you go. And you, you there might be some things that you are going to continue to work on or some things that might sound different. Someone might not understand you, but you are a great communicator. And making sure they understand that is a great way to build the confidence. And uh, it's a it's a great program. We've It started in the 1990s, and I feel they were ahead of their time, and they called it the Accent and Communication Training Program at SDSU. And then it was dormant for a while. I revived it just about 10 years ago. We take 16 clients a year from all over the world, and sometimes faculty, but it could also be students or community members, and they come in and they they just love it. And you have graduate students who are also doing clinic hours then with that. That's right. So they're first year grad students and they have two clients each. And then we do group sessions and they all work together. And we've had some former clients who have, who are doc students in our field, or we have some former clients who got their C's Mm -hmm. at some point. So we've, we've, we kind of pride ourselves in having clients who have really benefited and have gone on to either get involved in our field or become SLPs. And so you, you've also done private practice, right? With, um... I never have. No. Okay. That's <laughs> Believe it or not. because <laughs> It's been through this yeah. program. Yeah. I know. Well, cause especially since I was president of course, Pan until just last week or so a couple of weeks ago, um, I, I asked them, are you sure you want me to be president? Cause I've never done, I've never had done private practice. Are, are most people in the corporate speech pathology world? I'm guessing are private practice. SLP. They are. And I've learned a lot and I really respect them. And I think ah. it, it does color a lot of my thinking on this too, because that's why, I don't try to police what people say or think about this. They're, people are in business and and they're in business for a good reason. They have satisfied clients and however they can market their services and get clients who want to do it, mm-hmm. that seems like it's fair game to me. And um, like you said, what Google search is going to find 
people the support or the coaching that they're looking for. Yeah, and we've done some outreach, for example, when there when these criticisms happen about accent, we put together some panels, we put a, together a panel of providers, a panel of clients. What was interesting for me was I took six of my former clients. And as I mentioned to you, we never say accent reduction. We always say accent modification. And yet when these clients got on the panel, they kept talking about accent reduction. So a lot of times they're the ones who are introducing it. And we're kind of telling them like, no, we don't call it that. That's not the but, term we um, use, <laughs> But you know, at the end of the day, that's why I, I really don't try to police what people say. Um, you just can't. And I think maybe we're unfortunate that we call it accent modification. Some people have criticized that, but again, I had a 26 year career as an ESL teacher and we called it pronunciation instruction, but it was identical. I mean, I hear sometimes people who criticize it saying kind of assuming there are differences, but I did both. I did that for 26 years and I'm telling you, we do the same thing. It's a different format and we have different ways of doing things, but it's the same. We're working on the same targets. So, so maybe you didn't totally change fields. We just added. Not really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, for anyone who does have an ESL background, there is a lot of overlap in the field uh, to become an SLP. There's a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And talk about just, uh, I feel like your knowledge of languages, how much that has to help because you talked about non-native speakers, but you've been through that too, yeah. learning other languages. So it gives you a different perspective with coaching your clients. That's right. And I mentioned that I, I've been a client in the in the broad sense again, when I've just every language I've learned, you have to learn how to say the words. Mm -hmm. And and then in the narrow sense, because before I became a school-based SLP, I knew I would be working with Spanish-speaking kids. So I actually hired someone, not an SLP, but I just hired somebody to work with me. And I went over the test and I read out the items and I just asked for feedback to make sure that I would be intelligible to my clients. Yeah, and I I did the same now that you say that when I was living in El Paso, Texas and giving early, um, I have a pretty solid grasp of Spanish, but my accent, definitely not native. <laughs> so the only evals that I was comfortable with were very young, um, very young language learners. And so, um, but I, I remember calling my, my friend's mom, who is this, a retired Spanish teacher to coach me through. Um, how can That's I it. go through this eval correctly and, and be as clear and natural as you say as possible? Yeah. And that's why it's interesting when we hear these criticisms and we do try to listen very carefully. I feel like a lot of things we all really agree on, which is why it's been a little bit frustrating to, to feel that it's more of an attack on, on what we do. But a lot of times we feel that if we just switch things around and talk about this going on in, with different languages, everything seems to be a little bit easier to understand. A lot of it gets tied up in our current issues that we have, and it relates specifically to English and to the United States or US and Canada, mm -hmm. versus really saying, hey, if I'm learning Spanish, I'm going to want to make sure that everybody understands me. That's part of learning the language and that I could communicate naturally. That's Everybody wants that. Mm -hmm. When would, um, I guess, other than the the program that you run right now that is a semester, if someone is going to see a client or work with someone on accent modification um, because it is a choice, because it is not them meeting some certain benchmark or goal necessarily, how do you know when to wrap that up or when to encourage or coach them that, look, you're, you got uh, this? <laughs> yeah, that, that does come up a lot. And I think in private practice, because ours is very set, so they're going to be in there for mm -hmm. their 11 weeks and then they're done. And, uh, and sometimes they'll ask to, to repeat and we usually put them on the wait list, but we, we really don't do that. But the, um, when you're in private practice, it does come up a lot. And I think that it has to be the kind of that mutual agreement where the 
clinician's going to have to step in at some point and say, Hey, I think you're at the point where it's better for you to just go on your own, or maybe we meet a little bit later, or you come back and, but, it, but again, you're, if the client wants to keep meeting, so it's, it's a fine line. I, I, I can't uh, address that exactly since I'm not in private practice, but. Yeah. And um, is there anything I'm missing? Cause I know we're going to have to wrap up in a couple minutes, but is there anything I'm missing that you really want our listeners to know about accent modification? Well, I, I just think to, to reinforce that point, because it's so, it just comes up so often now is that we really understand that there is linguistic discrimination. It's a horrible thing. I've seen it all around the world. I've read many examples of it. You know, it just, it's, it's just shocking and staggering. So that goes on. But we also have the fact that when you're learning a language, you are going to have to acquire the phonology. I mean, that just is absolutely clear. And so I think what we're having problems with is, is, getting people to understand that both of these world, this is part of the world that we live in, both of these aspects. And so there can be a lot of terrible discrimination, a lot of things we can't really control and we can advocate for our clients, but there is also just the fact that you're learning a language and that you are going to try to acquire the phonology. So for people to just understand that this is a very um, normal and natural thing that we do, it's normal and natural to have an accent, but it's also normal and natural when you're acquiring a language to try to get some training in the phonology, just like you would with the syntax or the morphology or any other aspect of language. So we love it. The clients love it. You know, none of this ever comes from the clients. Clients are very happy. They come to see us and they get good results. So it's it's extremely rewarding. It's a lot of fun. I would recommend it to anyone if you want to get involved. It's a great way. A lot of people just do a little bit on the side and see if they're interested and then they take it from there. But it's it's a wonderful subfield. And Bob, so before we sign off, uh, please do share again. I know we shared it in the last episode, but what is the best way to get in touch with you? Again, the name of your book. And then also uh, some of the continuing education that's out there, because I know oh, there yeah. might be people listening who want to to hear some of that. Okay. Let me, let me mention a couple of those things again. We have, again, the SLPs and Accent Modification Facebook group is a great place for people to just get started. And, and there are about 3,500 members on there. CoreSpan is another amazing organization. That's the Corporate Speech Pathology Network because there are a lot of private, well, it's all private practitioners, but a lot of accent modification providers in there. And then my book is called Here's How to Do Accent Modification. It was published by Plural Publishing here in San Diego. Wonderful, wonderful publisher. Very supportive of our field with, with a lot of great titles. And you can reach me at rmckinney at sdsu.edu. And I would encourage your listeners, please just uh, send me an email just like you did, Michelle, because I like to connect with people. This has been the greatest thing that's come out of my book is just meeting people and then running out there and, and setting up a Zoom or just sending some emails and, and let's let's get in touch. Well, thank you for that. And thank you so much for taking your time to do, you know, two interviews with us so that um, we could learn about you and also learn more about accent modification. And um, I hope we can be in touch again soon. So Absolutely. thank you for being here. It was and a pleasure. This is Michelle Wintering with the Speech Science Podcast. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hot, joined by Rachel Archamba. Hello. Michelle Wintering. Hello. Hello. Are you guys, did you guys watch any of The Last of Us? Of course. Uh, I haven't. <gasps> Michelle. I haven't. It just ended this week. Don't and tell was... me anything because maybe I do want to watch. Oh, it's like a 10 year old video game. <laughs> so like, just don't Google anything about it. Yeah. But Rachel, when the thing happened and then the thing happened, it was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe the thing happened. I know the thing. 
But I am going to ask you one question, and it's not a spoil. <laughs> it's a spoilerly question. Okay. But Michelle, you won't understand the question until you watch the show. At the end, Bella's okay. Was that okay? I believe you, or mm. I no longer trust you. Ooh. Ooh. I think it's I no longer trust you. That is a really tough question right? because I on bullshit meter is off the chain. She knows when someone is she does. Her. She does. And it's bad because on TikTok, the more things you like, the more uh -huh. things that come up. So I've been seeing a lot. Uh, I I'm not a gamer, so I didn't know anything about the game. I think it's very cool. The side by sides that they've got going on. But I've seen like some fan theories or like what might happen in the part two. So I. I don't know right. the answer, but I'd like to believe that she's saying, okay, I believe you. That is my oh. answer. That's what I hope. That's what so, I hope. I've been listening to the podcast, The Last of Us, with the cool. original voice actor of Joel. Yes. And then the host, or not the host, the producer of the TV show and then the producer of the video game. And they asked that question on the, the last podcast. And everyone in the room had different answers on what they thought the okay meant. That's so interesting. I be, I think I watched the video version of that. And oh, I, yeah, yeah, I really enjoy that. I love the behind the scenes stuff. I think it's really well done. And for anyone that doesn't know about the show, it's a zombie kind of show, um, kind of pandemic um, in a way. Kind of. So yeah, I wouldn't say it's horror, but it's definitely like suspense and, I, I enjoy that kind of stuff. So I really enjoyed those nine episodes, season I one. I really liked it. All right, we're back. Sorry, Michelle. <laughs> All good. It's an important question to ask. I'm, I'm getting some vocal rest because okay. you can hear my um, <laughs> head cold going on right now. Yes. So at the end of the show, we always like to look at Asha and we like to ask the question. What up, Asha? Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. You're welcome. Uh, I have two things. Vocal One, rest. <laughs> their little version of the speech science podcast that they run called Asha Voices. They're, they're on air podcast. Uh, I do want to say a little shout out because they have Stacy Lim on there. And Stacy Lim ran my undergrad uh, audiology course when I went to Kent State University. And she is part of their deaf and hard of hearing audiologists. Uh, talking about being an audiologist and being deaf and hard of hearing. So very cool to a little Stacy Lim. I loved her as a, uh, as a, uh, a teacher or a professor. Very the nice. other thing that is the real uh, what's up Asha is they have updated the Asha code of ethics. It is now in effect March 1st, 2023. Nothing really new looks to be changed, but a lot of new rules based on just technology use. Ooh, I'm going to have to skim when, that. Yeah. Anything, any highlights you want to share, Matt? More about the confidentiality of patients, meaning that we need to make sure that when we are using anything uh, technology-wise that we're not violating confidentiality, mm -hmm. uh, that we're maintaining the, what is this? The dignity and autonomy of our profession. Okay. Of so. our profession. I think, I don't know. I, I wasn't on the decision-making. They did not <laughs> ask me my opinion 
on this, but I'm wondering if it's a lot of like, have you seen in our related fields of medical, like nurses talking about their icks and it's like yes. patients that request things and they're not being funny. They're oh, being serious. So I'm yeah. wondering if some of this is, is related to that. I, I, my interpretation was more involving like teletherapy and medical mm, records point, like that. So I, I think that there probably is an area in the ethics about social media and whatever, but I think it could also probably apply to like, Hey, please don't put your patient's business on social media. And not that they're violating HIPAA necessarily, um, because if they're not using identifying information, but it's not like nice <laughs> and it's Good. so uh, yeah, yeah uh, i know those nurses have gotten fired in some some places and it's just it's very cringy yeah so yeah. i'm gonna have Make to read sure through those the, uh, yeah ethics because you don't want to accidentally be up on a ethics violation nope so our show is coming to an end. What is one thing you are looking forward to over spring break? You knew the question was coming, and here Ooh, it is. Over spring break. So my spring break starts next Monday. So like six days from now, I am babysitting my friend's dog. So I'm staying at her house. I'm going to have a backyard so Dougie and Bailey can hang out together. And they have their TV set up for me, so I'm gonna watch a whole bunch of TV and do nothing the whole break. Um, have a little staycation. As oh you yeah, should. I am ready for it. I keep counting the hours until spring break, so yeah, I'm very excited. Nice, Michelle. Uh, spring break for most schools here is this week um, in Texas. And I am looking forward to on Friday going ice skating with some friends here Ooh. and our kids. Ooh. I'll fill you in on that one next. Protect your your little protect your heads. Yes. Oh yes. Well, also I I broke my arm ice skating in fourth grade. So. Oh my. There you go. Hopefully our arms as well. <laughs> uh, I am looking forward to Disney World. Yay! That's right. So, give give Mickey a high five for me. Of course I will. I will give Mickey the biggest of high fives. I'm excited for that. That would be fun. Well, I haven't been back to Disney since I ran the Disney race. Oh, so fair enough. I want to get back. Our intro music was "Please Listen Carefully" by Jazar. It's licensed under attribution and share alike license. You know, I feel like you should just record this one time and then never have to say it again i thought yeah. you were gonna do that Johnny a while ago rock copyrighted john <laughs> deku our so closing music is the slow burn by kevin mcleod licensed under a creative common attribution license in the immortal words of janice right always be a willow the oak looks strong until the wind blows and then it will crack for willows rachel and michelle i'm matt until next time so long everybody bye Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. And rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.